Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his fruit and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is your Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you in strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is one of the most famous stories in the world. Uh, I'm sure if, even if you're not familiar with Christianity or haven't read the Bible in a long, long time, you've heard in some way the story of Cain and Abel before. Uh, John Steinbeck, who is a 20th century author, in his magnum opus, East of Eden, uh, deep dives into the meaning of Cain and Abel's story. And really, this might say something about my sermon preparation, but I've been in conversation with Steinbeck all week thinking about this text. And uh, in that book, in one of the key scenes in the novel... Uh, we find the protagonist, this man named Adam Trask, having a conversation with his dad, whose name is Samuel, and with Lee. Lee is his Chinese servant. And Samuel reads Genesis 4 out loud, and then he says, we carry the story of Cain and Abel along with us like invisible tales. Most people don't read the details, but it's the details that astonish me. And then Lee, the Chinese servant, comments, No story has power, nor will it last unless we feel ourselves, in ourselves, that it is true and true of us. Now, Adam Trask isn't as familiar with the story of Cain and Abel as the other two, and so he asks them what the story means, and Lee responds by saying this, We are Cain's children. And isn't it strange that three grown men here in a century so many thousands of years away discuss this crime as though it happened in King City yesterday? I think this is the best known story in the world because it is everybody's story. I think it is the symbol story of the human soul. I think this old and terrible story is important because it is a chart of the soul, the secret, rejected, guilty soul. Now, we all make sense of our lives through narratives, through stories. That's why fiction and books and movies are so powerful oftentimes. Those things help us to make sense of our own lives. And so the question I want to ask you at the beginning is this. Is the story of Cain and Abel really 
all of our stories? And if that's true, uh (laughs) uh-oh. That's kind of a grisly story, right? It's a bit of a dark story. And so if that's true, what does it say about us? What does it mean for you and me now living millennia after these events took place? That's what I want to explore with you for a couple of minutes together this morning. We're moving into Genesis 4 in our studies of these early chapters of Genesis. And we need to understand that the Genesis account is extremely sparse, extremely sparse in what it tells us. Since the end of chapter 3, centuries have gone by as Adam and Eve have children and populate the earth and live under the curse of sin and under the promise of God. And we know that it's centuries, by the way, because in verse 15, Cain is worried that other people are going to attack and kill him. Who are these other people? Well, the only logical response is there are other children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Adam and Eve. The earth has begun to be populated. Also, if you look at chapter 5, you'll know that Adam lived a long, long, long time. Uh, 930 years to be exact. And so this story happens long after the events of Genesis 3. And the author of Genesis picks this story out to illustrate two realities that the rest of the Genesis story is very interested in. The first reality is the advance of sin. And the second reality is the advance of blessing. And this story tells us about both. It tells us both about the advance of sin and the advance of of God's blessing and grace in the middle of all the sin. So it's a powerful story. It's a complex story. And it's really, I'm convinced, a mirror of my own soul and of all of our souls. And so I want us to let the Spirit speak to us this morning through this ancient story. Let me organize our thinking together this way. Three points for you. First, we're going to see two brothers and two offerings. Second, we're going to see two options and one choice. And then third, three cries and one mark. Okay. So first two brothers, two offerings. We see in the first couple of verses here that Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel. They're not necessarily their first two children. The text doesn't say that. And it's definitely not the only two children of Adam and Eve, but the two boys are important to the author of Genesis. They seem like equals on the surface. They have the same parents They have the same DNA strand, right? They have the same environment, but one turns out to be the epitome of the innocent victim, Abel, a man who is full of faith. And the other turns out to be the first murderer, Cain, a man who is full of rage. And we see even in the early verses that underneath the surface, there's a lot going on here in the first family. Uh, Notice what Eve, Cain's mom says in verse one. I have gotten a man or acquired a man, really strange thing to say, with the help of the Lord. Now, in the original language in which the Old Testament was written, Hebrew, that phrase, with the help of, is not there. So what the text literally reads is, I have gotten a man, the Lord. I have gotten a man, the deliverer. And I think that's actually a better translation. So what does that mean? Why even mention it? Well, it tells us right away that Eve sees Cain as special. In fact, we could even say that Eve sees Cain. She sees in Cain the fulfillment of the God, of the promise God made to her in chapter 3 verse 15 that one of her children is going to crush the head of the serpent and deliver them. And as always in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, names names are highly significant. Names carry meaning for us. 
in the Old Testament. So we see that Eve thinks Cain is super special and super important. And we also see that the name Cain means to produce or to bring forth. And we know that Cain is a farmer, like his dad was a farmer. So Cain, we can see here, carries along the family business. He's a worker of the ground. And the text strongly suggests that he is highly successful at what he does. Cain is the shining star of the family. And we see that suggested, especially in the way that Cain is contrasted with his brother Abel. You'll notice that Eve says something amazing about Cain when he's born. But when Abel's born, she says nothing. And furthermore, the name Abel means vapor or afterthought. And you can see, even in the way that the narrative is constructed, Cain was born. Thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Abel was born too. That's exactly the meaning and the sense of the story. Cain is the star. Abel is a literal afterthought. You know, Abel is like Cinderella. Cain is like Cinderella's stepsisters. I think I've got this right. My daughter will correct me if I've got this wrong, but I'm pretty sure the stepsisters are the one that get all the attention from the stepmother. They get all of the gifts, all of the care, all of the kindness, and Cinderella finds herself exiled in a corner of the house at best, right? That's exactly, well, not exactly, similar to the situation that Cain and Abel find themselves in. Cain is the firstborn. Cain is the impressive one. Cain is the one who's going to carry on the family legacy. Abel, eh, not so much. Cain is a somebody, and he has given the name and the family business to back it up. Abel is a nobody, and he has given the name to back it up. The two brothers bring two offerings. This tells us that they both believe in God. They're both, at least on the outside, worshipers of God. But the story really gets going here. Look in verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. And of course, the main question is, why? Why did God reject Cain and his offering and accept Abel and his offering? Now, some have said that it was because Abel brought an animal. And that the implication is that Abel gave a blood sacrifice, which is something the Old Testament loves. And that's why God regarded Abel's offering and not Cain's, because Cain just brought produce. The only problem with that is there's absolutely no evidence in the text itself that that's the reason. Others say that Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's accepted because Abel brought the best of all the lambs. You'll even notice the text does say he brought the firstborn of his flock, whereas apparently Cain must have brought less than the best strawberry or less than the best potato or less than the best whatever they were growing. It's like if you catch H-E-B at the very end of strawberry season, that's what Cain brought. I actually don't buy that either. I don't think that's the reason God accepts one and rejects the other. Here's a good principle of biblical interpretation. This is free for you today. A good principle of biblical interpretation is that the Bible is its own best interpreter. The Bible is its own best interpreter. And we see later in the Bible the reason why God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. Hebrews 11.4 tells us. Listen to what Hebrews 11.4 says. The author of Hebrews writes, By faith... By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, 
he still speaks. So the inspired interpretation of Hebrews of Genesis 4 is, is that Abel is worshiping God in faith. Cain, however, is going through the motions. Abel lives by faith. Cain lives by sight. Abel's offering is for God. But Cain's offering is for Cain. Abel trusts God and relies on God. Cain trusts Cain and relies on Cain. And here's the thing. God sees the difference because God knows our hearts, just like he knew Cain and Abel's hearts. And that's what God cares about. God cares about what's going on in our hearts, not what's going on on the surface. Now, we don't know how Cain knew that God had rejected his offering. The text doesn't tell us. It only tells us Cain's response. Look in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was, two things, very angry and his face fell. He was despondent. He was crestfallen. And this is where we see that this is our story. This is where we see that Cain is a lot like us. Now, Steinbeck in East of Eden actually argues that the reason Cain is angry is because, is because God had rejected him. But I'm actually going to part ways with my friend John Steinbeck at that point. Uh, as we're going to see in a minute, God actually doesn't hate Cain at all. God loves Cain. Cain is angry and Cain is crestfallen because this event wrecks his entire identity. You see, Cain's entire life, as we've seen, is built on being better than Abel at everything. He's the older brother. He has received all of the affection of his parents. He's the source of the family's hope. He's the firstborn. And in an ancient culture, that means he's going to inherit everything. Abel? Abel's just a vapor. Abel literally is an afterthought. Cain has built his identity on his own privilege and success. And God comes to him and says, that is not what's going to impress me, Cain. And that crushes Cain. That makes Cain rage. He can't handle the fact that God, of all people, is the one that doesn't see him as he sees himself and as everyone else sees him. And here's what I want you to understand. Cain is a mirror of your heart and of mine. On the throne room of Cain's heart is Cain. It's his reputation, his business acumen, his being the family heir. What's on the throne room of your hearts? Ask yourself, what in my life, if taken away tomorrow, would destroy me? And I don't mean like if some horrible tragedy happens. That obviously would and should destroy you. What I mean is, what do you care about the most? What occupies your thoughts? Ask yourself, what in my life do I hold to so closely that if it were ripped apart away from my hands, I would be crushed? Is it vocational success? That's often the case with us. Would it, would it destroy you if, if your business crumbled tomorrow? If you don't get that next promotion? If your vision for your financial future doesn't even come close to what you're hoping for? Is it a good family? 
and good children? Would it destroy you if your children don't get into the college that you hope for? If your family issues get exposed for public consumption? Is it your desire to have, well, let me say for me, is it my desire to have a flourishing ministry? Would it crush me? Would I be destroyed if this church began to shrink instead of grow and no one ever recognized me? Deep down, all of us, in one way or another, build our identities on something other than trust in God. Money, success, family, church, whatever it is. And that is what sin is and does. Sin is a transfer from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of self. Sin makes our hearts what John Calvin called many years ago, idol factories. We're very adept at producing and promoting things to worship. We're constantly seeking to live for and worship anything other than the one we were made to live for and worship. That's what we see with Cain. That's what we see with ourselves. Two brothers, two offerings. Secondly, we see two options and one choice. Now, God knows that Cain is angry. He knows that Cain's face has fallen. And so what does God do? Look in the story. God approaches Cain and he asks Cain questions. Verse six, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Now, why would God do that? Let's be good theologians. God is omniscient. He knows everything. It's not like God is surprised by what's happening with Cain here. So why does Cain ask God questions? It's not like he's ignorant of the shape of Cain's soul right now. God is inviting Cain into confession and into obedience. That's why he asks Cain a question. It's the same thing, by the way, that he did with Adam, Cain's dad, back in chapter 3. He says, where are you? (laughs) Remember? It's not like God doesn't know that Adam's over there with this pathetic fig leaf underwear hiding behind a palm tree. God knows exactly what Adam is doing, and he knows here exactly what Cain is doing, but he asks a question of Cain. Now, the Bible's full of this stuff. The Bible's full of this stuff because God wants you and me to examine ourselves. God's the perfect counselor here. He asks this question for Cain's benefit, not for his benefit. He wants Cain to self-diagnose what's been exposed in his heart because he loves Cain. And God pursues Cain. So next he tells him in verse 7, hey, Cain, you've got a choice. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And it's true. Like Cain, all of us to some degree have agency. We have a certain level of freedom. We can choose, but you see here the choice Cain makes. Cain cannot envision a world where his brother is regarded and he is disregarded, least of all by God. He can't handle the shakedown that God is giving him and his reputation. And so he murders his brother. Verse 8, he does it in cold blood. It's premeditated. I love what Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Listen to this. Cain was confronted with God's measure of what truly matters and what is truly great. And since he could not change the measure 
and refused to change himself, Cain excluded both God and Abel from his life. Two things I want you to understand from this by way of application. First, sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is not just missing the mark. How does the Bible describe sin here? Sin is a power. Sin is a power. Imagine that you got thrown into a lion's den at the zoo, way down in the bottom of the pit, right at feeding time, and you have to fend for yourself. Well, that's exactly the depiction that the author of Genesis gives of sin. It's like an animal crouching at our door, waiting to devour us. And God asks Cain to master it, but Cain does not. And listen, Cain cannot. He can't master sin any more than any of us could master all of those lions in the zoo at feeding time. Sin is a power. And sin exercises power by blinding you to the truth that God does not regard you based on your personal resume. Let me repeat that. Sin exercises its power by blinding you to the truth that God does not regard you based on your personal resume. That's what Cain cannot accept. Cain cannot radically readjust his identity around God's judgment of him and around God's judgment of Abel, and so Abel has to go. Who's most susceptible to the blinding power of sin? People like Cain. And you might be thinking, oh, thank God. I've never killed anyone. I'm off the hook. No, 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 no. We're not to the off the hook part of the sermon yet. You're on the hook. And so am I. People who are successful, people who are impressive, people who are important. Listen, the people who have the most to lose by having their worlds rocked by God are the people most susceptible to thinking that God judges us based on who we are. The people who have the most to lose by having their worlds rocked by God are the ones that are most susceptible to thinking that God judges us based on who we are. Is that you? And if it is, how would you even know? Well, if you're confronted with failure in your life and it's always someone else's fault, I mean, what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? He deflects blame just like his dad and just like his mom. You know, if you're a master at diagnosing the problems of others, but you're completely oblivious to your own problems. You know, if your life is really chock full, like a sin cocktail of things like envy and grumbling and gossip and anger. You know, if your life isn't going the way that you had hoped and you have this sort of underneath the hood, seething bitterness towards those who you think have led you there, namely God. If you value the opinions of other people and you work hard to hide any weaknesses that would hurt your reputation, if any of those things or all of those things is true of you, then sin has mastered you. And you cannot overcome it. Sin is a power. A second thing you see here is, for lack of a better way of putting it, the weakness of just knowing what the right thing to do is. You ever thought about that? I mean, God literally verbally tells Cain, Hey, Cain! You got two choices. You should obey, and you should probably not kill your brother. Sin is coming for you, Cain. You should not give in to it. 
And Cain immediately, knowing the right thing to do, gives into it. He immediately kills his brother. Just knowing what the right thing to do is, is not enough, friends. It's not. Because sin is too strong and we are too weak. But we're all very prone to really wanting to know what the right thing to do. Just tell me what to do, pastor, and I'll do it. No, you won't. And no, I won't. That's, by the way, why we love, like, five-point help sermons. I love those sermons, to be honest with you. Five ways to a better marriage. Three ways to a financial security. Seven steps to a closer walk with God. We love that stuff because it fits with the way we think God changes people. But here's the problem. Knowing the right thing to do does not change you. Cain knew the right thing to do. He had one command. He had one job. You got one job, Cain. Don't let sin master you. And what does Cain do? It doesn't take long. It's like verse 7 to verse 8. Sin has mastered him. Why is that the case? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. We like to think that if we just have rules, we'll be okay. We can keep them. That will make everything good for us. But actually what rules do because of sin is expose how bad we are at keeping them. And that's exactly what we see here with Cain. And if you're honest, it's exactly what you see with yourself. The point of this text is not you have the choice to obey God or to disobey God, choose to obey. No, the point remains to be seen. Let's look at it. Third, three cries and one mark. We see three cries in this story. The first is the cry of Abel's blood. And this cry represents what all of us deserve. God tells Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And what is the cry of Abel? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's a cry for vengeance. It's a cry for justice. So right after the fall into sin, we see the great and the wicked gravity of sin in its full force. We see murder here in the immediate aftermath of the fall. Adam and Eve's children are killing each other, and God sees it too, and God cares. God does not let evil go unpunished because he's a good king. And so in verse 11, we read that God curses Cain. He exiles Cain from his community and from his family, verse 12. Just like Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden, now Cain is exiled from him. The cry of Abel is the cry for vengeance. It's what we deserve. The second cry is Cain's cry. Verse 13, he complains or he argues that he can't handle the punishment. My punishment is greater than I can bear. If Abel's blood crying out is what we deserve, Cain's cry is what we do. Cain's cry is what we do. Now, verse 13 either means, Cain is either saying, my guilt is so great that I just can't handle it, or the punishment for my crime is so great that I can't handle it. But let's think about that just a little more carefully for a minute. Remember, the punishment for murder is death. Not just murder. The punishment for sin, period, is death. Cain should die here for the murder of his brother. In fact, in just a few chapters in Genesis, Genesis 9, we read, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. But what happens to Cain? God does not put Cain to death, just like God didn't put Adam and Eve to death. In fact, God here lets Cain experience the consequences of his sin, but also shows him mercy. He extends to him an opportunity for grace. 
He gives him a chance for forgiveness, even in the middle of his consequences for his sin. It's the patience and the kindness of God on display here, because it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to lead Cain to repentance. So even in the middle of punishment, God cares for Cain. Cain goes out of God's presence, but he doesn't get away from God's protection. And we read that in verse 15. God responds to Cain's cry by putting a mark on him. Verse 15. God put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, that was likely some visible sign, some tattoo, perhaps. This is not a justification or a a destruction of tattoos. That's a different sermon that I'll probably never preach. Um, This is just a mark of some sort that prevents people from attacking Cain. It's some visible sign that protected Cain in his exile. And so by God's own law, Cain deserves death, but Cain is spared. Cain experiences, in a way, the kindness of God, and it marks him. It marks him in a visible way. The same God who showed regard for Abel's blood now shows kindness to Abel's murderer. And you know, you and I are often in a similar situation. We experience consequences for our own sinfulness, for for our own corruptibility. For the fact that we are broken, but even in the middle of the consequences we experience for our own sin, God's kindness is evident. Part of the question of this story is, can you see it in your life? Cain's offered God's grace. I'm convinced. Sadly, he refuses. We'll look more at that next week. He refuses God's grace. He turns away from God, but the point still stands for us today. And what is the point, after all? I guess it's about time I get there. What is the point of this story? Here's the point. The radical change that every one of us need to come back home to God and to overcome the power of sin is not going to be found through our choice or through our actions. That's the point. The change that all of us need to experience God's favor again, to overcome the power of indwelling sin, is not going to be found through our choice or our actions. God tells Cain, you have a choice, and Cain immediately blows it. God tells us every day, Do this and you will live. Don't do this. Things are going to go poorly for you. And we every day blow it. Now, as I said, we're drawn to the idea that we have it in our power to change our lives radically. But the truth is, the truth is this. Sin has way too much sway over us. And the story points us in that direction. I think we really are Cain's children by nature. We really are that tainted and that stained And so what's the answer? What do we need? Well, we need a third cry. We need a third cry. The cry of Abel's no good for us. That's just justice. The cry of Cain's no good for us. That's just complaining. We need the cry of Jesus. Hebrews tells us again in exegesis of Genesis 4, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How can we experience the grace of God even in our guilt? How can we overcome the power of sin that crouches within all of us? It's not by choosing to do the right thing. It's by trusting. God looks at us, and in Jesus, instead of proclaiming judgment and condemnation, which would be perfectly legitimate for him to do, he proclaims grace 
and restoration. God looks at us and says, grace. Jesus' blood cries out from the ground for us, and it cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spoke justice, but there's a better word. There's a better cry, the word of forgiveness. By God's own law, to be honest, we all deserve death. We all deserve exile, just like Cain. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over your life than getting what you deserve. And only the embrace, only the embrace of the crucified Christ in your guilt can heal you of the guilt and the power of sin. This story is pointing you to the fact that you can't heal yourself. Only Jesus can do it for you. It's pointing you not to listen to the cry of Abel and not to shriek the cry of Cain, but to run to the cry of Jesus because he has forgiven you, because only he has the power to do it. He has cleansed you because he was willing to take on your dirtiness. He's opened the pathway back to God because he, for a time, was barred from God's presence. It's what Cain needed to hear. It's what Abel heard and believed. It's what each, you, each of us hear right now and are being asked to believe. Isaac Watts is one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of the church, and he has a not very well-known hymn that I'm going to quote just to finish up here this morning. I think it makes the point well. Um, this hymn is called Laden with Guilt and Full of Fears. Uh, so read with me and listen to this. Laden with guilt and full of fears, I fly to thee, my Lord. Not a glimpse of hope appears, save in thy written word. The volumes of my Father's grace does all my griefs assuage. Here I behold my Savior's face on every page. Remember, the Bible is reading you more than you are reading the Bible. Remember, this is your story. Remember, the blood of Jesus cries out for you now. Will you trust that? It's the way to change. It's the way to life. It's the way to hope. Let's pray.